Open your Bibles to Hebrews 11 as we come to the time of our service where we seek to be taught and instructed as Christ's people from His Word. Hebrews chapter 11. Before I begin reading our passage for today, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask Him to bless our time in His Word. O Father in Heaven, we pause, Lord, and we come to You, and God, we confess that we are humbled by this great and wonderful opportunity to gather, Lord, in freedom here in this land to worship You and to call upon Your name, to sing our heartfelt songs to Your glory and Your goodness to us. Lord, we thank You. We, we never, Lord, want a Sunday to go by where we do not rejoice in this great um, benefit You give us. And, oh God, thank You from the bottom of our hearts for allowing us, Lord, to worship You in peace and quietness. Gathered as Your people today, oh God, we wish to be instructed. We, we need You, Lord, to guide us. We need You to, Lord, through Your Word, Magnify Yourself and reveal to us, O Lord, Your will for us and our lives. Lord, we confess to You some uh, amongst us, Lord, are indeed weary. Lord, um, indeed struggling. And, O God, we come now to Your Word and we seek to be, uh, Father, led by You. uh, To know more about You. That, Father, while we're here in this pilgrim life, that we may, Lord, journey with confidence, with, Lord, patience, and with wisdom. Come now, we pray, O Father in heaven. Make yourself known to us by the power of your Spirit and your Word, which you have preserved and kept pure for us as your church. We bless you and we thank you and ask these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Before we read our passage, um, I want to draw your attention to the pillars of truth. You'll have a copy of this in your pew. If you don't, just kind of look around at the pews around you and you'll find a copy. And let's turn together to page 84. And we're going to look at page 84 where it is speaking from the Baptist Catechism about the doctrine, that is the biblical teaching, of God's providence. Page 84, question number 14. The question is this, what are God's works of providence? And the answer, as you can see from uh, below there, based upon God's word is, God's works of providence are His most holy, wise, and powerful preserving and governing all his creatures and all their actions. Um, This is a good thought to introduce today's passage of Scripture because in a large way, what we're going to be advocating for in the text, what I hope you will see with me in the text, is in the life of these people that are recorded in chapter 11 in the book of Hebrews are many examples, many character qualities Uh, many aspects of enduring faith that we have been considering together to help us move forward in the, the faith that God has called us to. And one key element of that to help us do that, which all of these men who we're going to look at today, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, they understood very well was that God ruled in providence over all things. And so as we will go throughout their lives, just a survey of their lives in order to hold forth what God has done in and through them, showing us how to persevere in patience, always remember these men, they understood by the gift of faith that God was who He said He was and that God was ruling and actively reigning in of all of creation through His providence. We just sung as part of my intro in the hymn, I'll love thee in life, I will love thee in death. 
and praise Thee as long as Thou lendest me breath. With these words in the back of our mind, let's now come to our text today and remember all of these people that we're reading about. This is the love that they had uh, grounded upon the providence of God given to them through faith. So we come to Hebrews 11. Let's uh, back up to, let's see, let's go to verse 8. Let's read 8 to 22. By faith, Abraham, when he was called to go out into a place which he should after receive for an inheritance, he obeyed and he went out, not knowing whether he went. By faith, he sojourned in the land of promise as in a stranger, dwelling in tabernacles with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he looked for a city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Through faith also Sarah received strength to conceive seed and was delivered of a child when she was past age, because she judged him faithful who had promised. Therefore sprang there even of one, and him as good as dead, so many as the stars of the sky in multitude, and as the sand which is by the seashore innumerable. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off and were persuaded of them and embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For they that say such things declare plainly that they seek a country. And truly, if they had been mindful of that country from whence they came out, they might have had opportunity to have returned. But now they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly. Wherefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He hath prepared for them a city. By faith, Abraham, when he was tried, offered up Isaac, and he that had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it is said that in Isaac shall thy seed be called. Accounting that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from whence also he received him in a figure. By faith Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau concerning things to come. By faith Jacob when he was dying, blessed both the sons of Joseph and worshipped, leaning upon the top of his staff. By faith, Joseph, when he died, made mention of the departing of the children of Israel and gave commandment concerning his bones. Well, may the Lord bless the reading and the hearing of his holy word. Having just sung the words that we will love Thee and praise Thee as long as He gives us breath, church, we're powerfully reminded of the enduring love for Jesus Christ that resides in the heart of every child of God who has been called and converted by His amazing grace. Jesus is, as this letter to the Hebrews has been teaching us, He is our great Redeemer. He is to us who love Him as long as He gives us breath, our great High Priest. He is our great Mediator and Covenant Head who is at this very moment we have learned residing in the heavenly realm. Isn't He? Ministering. He is mediating for us His church while we yet remain here on earth. And this reality of our place here on earth and the reality of Jesus in the spiritual heavenly realm brought into focus last week caused us to reflect on how the Bible teaches that the Old Testament saints, David and Abraham, they saw themselves as spiritual sojourners here on earth. Now you may recall that what we mean by a spiritual sojourner is like Abraham and David and the other saints talked about in Hebrews 11. 
or those who are while they're here, they are still looking past the physical realities to the heavenly promises and the heavenly blessings that are made certain in the promises of God. He is a God who cannot lie. He is a God who is the same God today as He was yesterday, and He will be forevermore. They were spiritual sojourners. And we concluded last week in our passage considering Abraham that it was this type of heavenly mindedness that indeed enabled these spiritual sojourners, our forefathers in the faith, our fellow sojourners, you could say, it enabled them to what? Live a life of consistent, perpetual, persevering patience unto the very end. No matter what they saw, no matter what was going on around them, it was their spiritual soul-journeying perspective that helped them make it unto the end. We move away from Abraham now in this catalog of all of the Old Testament saints and we're introduced now in verses 20 and 22 to Isaac, to Jacob, and to Joseph, who also, with Abraham and David and us, saw themselves as pilgrims and strangers here on this earth, being ministered to, being sustained by Christ in heaven unto the very end. And so the author wants us to look at them And as we're looking at them, in order to help bolster or support our overarching theme of chapter 11, we're going to consider from their lives, what was it that could help contribute to us developing an enduring faith? And friends, after praying and thinking about it, I think what we ought to consider in their lives is their persevering patience. Their persevering patience. And so the title of my message today is very simply, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, Models of Persevering Patience. Before we begin to look at Isaac, the first one who's mentioned to us in verse 20, notice with me in verse 13 what it says. These all died in faith, not having received the promises. Now this verse, besides being a powerful verse to support the teaching and the doctrine of the spiritual soldier that we considered last week, for purposes today, let's take special note that the text is clearly saying that all of these, uh, Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph included today, all of these died. Their bodies were laid in the ground. They died in faith, not having received the promises. What what does this mean? Well, what this means is that each subsequent generation, beginning with Abel, was looking for a satisfaction, or you could say a fuller uh, revealing or consummation of the promise that was given in Genesis 3.15, further revealed then in the covenant made with Abraham, And they were, each generation, to some degree, not satisfied with its reality. They they, they were still longing, weren't they? At the end of Abraham's life, while he was, yes, blessed with the promised physical seed of his son, friends, at the end of his life, he still, the text we learn in the passage of Hebrews, was looking past that to a better country, to a better land, wasn't he? And so there was an already aspect to the blessings of these patriarchs that they had already received. Their hearts, dear sister, were full of joy. They were given the promise of God and in so many ways helping sustain them in their life when they would have ups and downs. But still there was a not yet fulfillment of the promises. This is what verse 13 is teaching us. They died in faith, not having yet received the promises. You see, there was an already aspect. They had faith. They were given eyes to see. They were given hearts to hope. But there was a not yet fulfillment completely of the promise. So they were, again, having that spiritual journey, sojourner mindset, looking for that better country. And they had to perseveringly be patient until that consummating time would come. And that would require much 
patience. Much patience. And with that, we come to verse 20. Look at verse 20 with me. We see here we're introduced in this grand hall catalog of Old Testament saints to Isaac. By faith, our text says, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau concerning what? Things already passed? No. Blessed him concerning things to come. There we have again this, this connotation of a sojourner, right? Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau concerning things to come. Now, this uh, verse starts off with this echoing phrase, just like verse 21 and verse 22, by faith, Isaac. By faith, Jacob, right? By faith, Joseph. And it's meant to bolster the writer's overall theme of persevering and enduring faith. By faith, these things have been made possible. And so from the beginning of verse 20, the beginning of verse 21 and verse 22, we know that these Old Testament saints, they possess the good old-fashioned biblical faith described in Hebrews 11 verse 1. Faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. Things to come. It's the substance of things hoped for. Right? And it's evidence of things not seen. The evidence that we're about to examine, which he's going to focus on within their life, was the actual uh, things, not the materialistic you could touch, but you could almost touch them because there were fruits in their lives that evidenced that the faith was real. That the faith was real. So we come to Isaac here. Now, beloved, I don't know how long it's been since you've studied the life of Isaac. But, you know, this week, getting back into the life of these old patriarchs, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, I thought to myself, you know, um, if I was going to write Hebrews 11, I think that I would have focused perhaps on Isaac's earlier life as an encouragement to strengthen you in his enduring faith. What I mean by that is that, you know, we saw in, in past messages and we saw earlier in the text that Isaac, I would think, his most imminent, exemplary example of faith that should help you and I was when he was willingly lying down as a boy upon the altar, willing to give his life up in obedience, complete obedience to his father. Abraham. I, I mean, when you look at that, you think to yourself, what courage that took. What commitment to the words of his father who received a divine revelation, an oracle from God. What overall tremendous faith that act demonstrated in his life. And in my humble estimation, it's one of his most shining moments in all of the witness of Scripture. However, look back at verse 20. Notice with me very carefully that the Holy Spirit of God, who is most holy, who is most wise, right? I didn't write Hebrews 11. He wrote it. He wishes for us to reflect upon what truly was Isaac's most profound witness of faith. And that is the account that's recorded in Genesis 27, where at the very end of his life, he blesses his sons, Jacob and Esau. Now, before we consider what verse 20 is causing us to consider and observe as his most crowning achievement of his faith, uh, let's think just for a moment uh, in this theme of persevering patience, what was the preceding context of Genesis 27, right? In the example of Isaac. Well, we know that Isaac had what you could say from the witness of Scripture was an unhealthy uh, family dichotomy of favoritism, right? Genesis 25, 28, you maybe recall this, where the word of the Lord draws focus to this unhealthy favoritism that existed in their family. It says that Isaac loved Esau because he did eat of his venison, but Rebekah loved Jacob. And to compound this tension in their little small family here, there was this revelation from God given to Rebekah about the younger, about the younger ruling over the older. In Genesis 25:23, the Lord supernaturally revealed unto Rebekah this prophecy. 
Two nations are in thy womb, and two manner of people shall be separated from thy bowels. And the one people shall be stronger than the other, and the elder, that's Esau, shall serve the younger, that is Jacob. I mean, we could continue to go on with the life of Isaac. You remember he repeated the same sin and mistake his father did when he was sojourning down in the land of the Philistines. He lied to the pagan king and said that Rebekah was his sister and not his wife because he was fearful uh, of what would happen to him. And so you kind of understand why I'm saying that I don't think Isaac would have been the best example, right, of uh, encouraging us in a faith to walk. Uh, a faith to uh, mimic or to, to replicate. But now we come to Genesis 27, and we see that this is why Isaac's demonstrated, not because he was perfect, um, not because that he did everything exactly the right way, but what matters the most, what would have required much patience through all of those failures and all of those missteps that he himself committed and contributed to, is what we see in Genesis 27. So let's go now to Genesis 27 because that's what verse 20 is wanting us to look at as the imminent example. What is this faith that requires so much patience which is a precious element to make it unto the end? Well, here Isaac is after this long, hard road and he's coming to the point where he's going to give the blessing. Now, now, this blessing that he's going to give, friends, this isn't like a blessing we're saying when we sit down to eat our meals. Right? We give thanks. Uh, this is a prophetic blessing, blessing. This is a blessing where Isaac is going to uh, pass on to Jacob a covenant arrangement that was given to his father Abraham that God initiated himself and that Abraham gave to Isaac. And so it's prophetic in the sense of Isaac saying... I still confess that the one true living God who Abraham was converted unto, which Noah proclaimed, he still is the one true living God, and he will do what he says he will do. I profess that he will do this because God said he would do this. He made it certain in the covenant with Abraham. And so he comes to this, and and he's going to say this to his sons, And you look at verse 1. It came to pass when Isaac was old and his eyes were dim so that he could not see, he called Esau his eldest son and he said unto him, My son. And he said unto him, Behold, here I am. Well, here Isaac's ready to give the covenant blessing, isn't he? And he's going to give it to Esau. He had every intention of giving it to Esau. That was his favorite son. He was the firstborn. But look at verse Six, this dysfunctional family. It's a, there's more sin and more deceit and more trickery surrounding this entire context. Verse six. His wife Rebecca. You guys know the story well, I'm sure. And Rebecca spake unto Jacob, her son. What did she say to Jacob? Behold, I heard thy father speak unto Esau thy brother, saying, Bring me venison, and make me my savior meat, that I may eat and bless thee before the Lord. Before my death. Well, what did uh, Rebecca do? She come up with a scheme, didn't she? She come up with a plan. And now, friends, I've read this account and I've heard it preached so many times, and some of the elements of it still are baffling to me. That you know, Jacob is is covered with some sort of goat skins that Jacob's going to touch and he's going to feel and he's going to think it's Esau and he actually blesses him. Look at verse 18. Uh, Jacob, he comes in unto his father and he said, My father, and he said, Here I am. Who art thou, my son? And Jacob outright lies. And Jacob said unto his father, I am Esau, thy firstborn, and I have done according as thou badest me Arise, I pray thee, sit and eat of my venison, that thy soul may bless me. Well, we know that Isaac goes on to bless Jacob, doesn't he? He blesses Jacob instead of Esau. 
And then the plot even thickens more when we get down to verse 30. And it came to pass, as soon as Isaac had made an end of blessing Jacob, pronouncing this prophetical covenantal blessing based upon the certainty and the surety of God himself, look what happened. Esau's brother came in from his hunt. Well, did he just say, oh, hey, don't worry about it, guys. It's okay. No. Look at verse 31. He also had made savory meat, and he brought it unto his father. Esau did it, and he said unto his father, Let my father arise and eat of the son's venison, that thy soul may bless me. And Isaac his father said unto him, Who art thou? And he said unto him, I am thy son, thy firstborn, I, Esau. And Isaac trembled very exceedingly and said, and said, Who? Where is he? who hath taken venison and brought it to me, and I have eaten of all before thou camest, and have blessed him. Yea, and he shall be blessed. Esau heard the words of his father, and he cried with a great exceeding bitter cry, and said unto his father, Bless me, even me also, O my father. And he said, Thy brother came with subtlety, that is, deceitfulness, and hath taken away thy blessings. Now, what's interesting here in Hebrews 20 of why the writers have this focus on this really sinful situation, a really just perplexing, compound, complex situation full of deceit by people trying to scheme, plot, and plan over everyone is he's wanting us to see shining above all of the imperfections of these people, shining above all of the failures of this family, shining above all of the mishaps of Isaac and missed opportunities for discipleship is the sovereign providence of God. Do you see it? He's wanting us to see that God overrode all of those things and is going to bring about the covenant promise that He gave to Isaac And despite all of Isaac's mishaps and failures, friends, what he's wanting us to see in Hebrews 11 is that he still believed. I mean, Brother Noah, what he's saying is that Isaac at this point in the end of his life, no doubt is thinking, you know what? Surely, you know, I know there's a lot of trouble and there's a lot of tension in the family. I know there's a lot of things that I could have probably done with Jacob that I didn't do. He was, you know, spending so much time, the Bible tells us, in the tent with his mother. I wish I had this opportunity. I wish I took more advantage of this time, whatever, whatever. But despite, despite my failures, God will fulfill his promises. And so come, come, I, I want to bless you, Esau. I want to give you this covenant blessing. I, want to, I know God's going to fulfill his promise. Now, Friends, what draws this into real focus for us, I think, is considering the fact how long it's been since Abraham received the covenant promise. I mean, you're talking over a century has passed. Now, when I say that or make that observational point, what ought to echo in your mind is exactly what Abel, Enoch, and Noah experienced. Remember, they were told... No doubt from Adam, the gospel, they were told of the promise that occurred in the, the garden. And here, Abraham is visited by God and, and, and God, in a sense, he restates the promise and that somehow Abraham and his descendants are going to be connected to it. And here we have another 120 some odd years that go by when Isaac's at his deathbed. Isaac, friends, had every single reason to say to himself, I think that dad, I think that dad just uh, had a little bit too much wine on that night he said he met God. Isaac had every reason to say, you know what, I think that uh, God's changed his mind. I I, I mean, you know, it's been a good long while now and there hasn't seemed to be any kind of manifestation of the things to come but having the substance of the hope that God is who He is and having evidencing now of the things not seen. What's Isaac do, friends? 
He exhibits the faith in the gospel that God originally gave, the hope and the promise, by blessing His sons. You know, the wisdom of God is profound in drawing our attention to this crowning act, as if it were, of Isaac's faith. Because God knows at the end of one's life is that time when what you most believe comes to the surface. Is it fear? Is it uncertainty? Is it anxiety? In Isaac's case, it was none of those things. It was a concern to pronounce to the next generation, particularly he wanted Esau. God's providence gave him Jacob. He pronounced to them, God's promise still is yet to come. Don't lose hope. Don't give up. Continue steadfast in the promise of God. God is true. God is certain, etc., etc. Brothers and sisters, is that going to be the type of patience that we're going to exhibit no matter what comes along? And there will be things that come along. We just looked at a very cursory summary of Isaac's life. Why will those things come along? Because, friends, just as Paul says, we still all wrestle. Our family members, those who we're supposed to be selfless to, they all still struggle with the remaining corruptions of sin. Oh, yes, they have an already new nature, but they have not yet the consummated, resurrected, sinless body, do they? And so, of course, these things are going to come along. And like Isaac, we all plod along as faithful Christian pilgrims with persevering patience so that at the end of our life, if if God would bless us with this, what a blessing it would be to gather our children and our grandchildren around And say, oh dear children, oh dear family, Christ has not returned yet, but don't you forget His words. Christ is who He says He is. He has made known to your hearts with eyes of faith that He is the Lord of lords and the King of kings. And He is preparing a place for me right now as I get ready to go meet with Him. And someday He shall return to do what? Make all things right. To make all things right. I pray that God would have mercy on us, friends. That we will look at Isaac's life and know that we need just the same persevering patience as he had. Well, you know the old saying, right? Perhaps you've used it yourself as we move to verse 21. Like father, like son. (laughs) Well, to a great degree, that is certainly true of Jacob. Here's the subject of verse 21. Verse 21, we see, says, By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, he blessed both the sons of Joseph and worshipped, leaning upon the top of his staff. Well, we just mentioned Jacob's first act, right, of his adult life, which was pretty conniving, really. He sneaks in. I mean, think about the details of all of that. He's going to have his mom make the food. He's going to put on these animal skins. He's going to crouch in there. You know he had to change his voice, right? <clears throat> you know, who art thou? It's Esau. He had to trick his dad. And then his brother walks in. He's got to look at his brother, who he just took the blessing from. It's just a mess. And then Jacob goes on in his life, and his life still is a a manifestation, as if it were, of these character traits that reflect many times that Jacob's going to try to do things his own way. Beginning in Genesis 29, just a cursory review of his life to to demonstrate the aspect that through it all, he worshiped God at the end. He worshiped God at the end. We know that Isaac, I'm I'm sorry, Jacob, like his father Isaac, he allowed his physical desires to dictate his choices or cloud his decision-making despite the promises of God given to them. Uh, We know this because he looked favorably upon Rachel instead of Leah. Why? Because Rachel was pretty. Not necessarily because of her character qualities. 
And what did that get Jacob? Following his physical desires and his physical pursuits over his head. Well, it got him what? Indentured servanthood to his uncle Laban for a prolonged period of time for another seven years. After that, we know the Bible teaches us that after Jacob served his uncle Laban, kept his word, I think he didn't really have much of a choice because of all of Laban's men and his strength. He serves Laban for that additional seven years and they strike up a bargain, don't they? That Jacob is going to continue to work for his uncle Laban because, well, hey, Jacob does a really good job with these animals and Laban didn't want to let that go. So, hey, let's make an arrangement. And the Bible teaches us that Jacob says, okay, I'll stay here longer and work for you. However, doing that, I'm going to make sure that your flocks diminish and all of my flocks prosper. And so he uses some sort of breeding process. Uh, many commentators contributed to the sovereignty of God blessing Jacob. However you look at it, Jacob's intentions were very clear. I'm going to take advantage of the situation over Laban. I, I, he's trusting me with the flocks, and I'm going to make sure that I come out on the upper end of things. After, 30, uh, after Genesis 31... He labors there for Laban for 20 years. God commands Jacob to go back to his family in Canaan, go back to his father's clan, Isaac. And so what does he do? He obeys. There's this bright point. You see the pilgrim sojourn in life that requires so much patience. It has these ups and downs, ups and downs. And so he sets forth on the journey, doesn't he? And we know that during that journey, he meets with what the Bible identifies as the angel of the Lord. And there at Penel, he wrestles with this angel of the Lord. The Bible says all night long. And at there at that exchange, something particularly happens. Something special occurs. His, his name is changed to Israel. It's almost like there was a conversion that took place. Uh, his name is changed. The covenant is, is reiterated. He has this unique encounter with the angel of the Lord. Where his eyes are open, he's reset as if it were with his place in the journey unto the promises. We would like to think then after this that there's going to be this squeaky clean, nice, perfect standing above the head and shoulders of all the rest in chapter 11 of Hebrews, witness of Jacob's life, right? And all of his troubles would go away. I mean, after all, that is what a lot of preachers teach us, right? That once you come to this, you've you, you got to reach this certain level of spiritualness, this, this certain level of, of, of intimacy with God, and all of your marital problems, Noah, will just vanish somehow or another. Grizz, all of your employment issues that you ever may ever have in your life, they'll just take care of themselves and you'll just have your best life now. Well, you would think that's what would happen to Jacob. After all, he wrestled with God and God blessed him and changed his name as a token of God's love to him and God's faithfulness to him. The only name change any of us have ever gotten, friends, is from sinner to saint. Amen? And that's in a way what happened here at Penel. Well, things done get better for Jacob. Around this time of his journey back to his father's tribe, while he was near the city of Shechem, his daughter, his only daughter, is violently raped. And in response, two of his sons, they react in violence and rage. And they go and they kill every single man in Shechem. Don't leave a one standing. They come back, and then all the other ten brothers go with them to the city, and they spoil the city, taking all the city's riches. The Bible doesn't record Jacob participating in that. The Bible does record later on Jacob removing blessings from the two sons for doing such an act. And so you see, there's just this drama. I mean, could you imagine the, just the grief of trying to minister to the daughter? And then what? What did your sons do? Or what did your brothers do? Oh, they did what? They did, ah, oh, you know? Not long after that, continuing this journey of Jacob, 
who we're focusing on here in the, in the life of in verse 21? He loses his wife. His wife, his precious wife, who he labored, literally labored, to get her head in marriage. She passes away upon the delivery of her, their last son, Benjamin. Well, there is a bright aspect to this. He's reunited with his father, Isaac. Um, and after about 12 years of being with Isaac and around Isaac's extended tribe at this point, Jacob and his entourage, he's made peace with Esau. They're all kind of somewhat of a united family. There's some, you know, some peace amongst them. After 12 years, his father Isaac dies. But like his father Isaac, Jacob makes the mistake of family favoritism, doesn't he? Out of his 12 sons, he shows special favoritism toward Joseph. Friends, favoritism in a family is toxic. Avoid it. That's one principle. That's not the point of the message today, but you keep seeing this come forward. Uh, these men committing this error. And so he, he favors his son Joseph. His, his pride and his joy makes him a special coat, doesn't he? And he gives Joseph this coat. And what does Joseph do? Oh boy, he wants to make sure his brothers know he's favored by his dad, right? And you guys know the account that Joseph will get in a moment. He goes to his brothers and he tells them the special dreams, how they're going to serve him, etc., etc. And that just festers more bitterness, more covetousness, more envy in Jacob's family. Another great trial comes upon this weary pilgrim Jacob when he's about 100 years old. And when his sons come back and tell him, the very ones who sold Joseph into the bondage and slavery of Egypt, they come back and tell him, they say, Dad, look at this bloody coat. You know the one that you gave our brother Joseph to demonstrate how much you loved him? Look, it's saturated in blood. He was killed by a wild beast. You remember Jacob's response? This man, 100 years, 8 years old, who is still hoping, he's still trusting, he's still wondering, is this all going to work out? He rent his clothes, didn't he? Crying out to God. Why couldn't it have been me? Take me. Oh, that I could have my son, my precious son, Joseph. It was all a lie. Think about how wicked that was. What Jacob's sons did to him. I mean, when you look at the details of some of these narratives of what transpired, brothers and sisters, you begin to see just how in the covenant community who profess that they're following God, people can treat one another. The long-suffering patience that's required of you and of you, of you, of you, of all of us toward one another in the house of God. Well, I don't like they didn't talk to I don't care, but I didn't do that. I didn't do that. Friends, where's your patience with one another? Where's our patience with one another at times of difficulty? Jacob has his own sons deceitfully convince him that his favorite son, Joseph, is dead and it's all a ruse and a lie. He's crushed after this, the Bible teaches us. His life goes in a spiral downward into depression. And who wouldn't be? Put yourself in his shoes as a pilgrim, as one of God's people. Remember who he wrestled with? Remember the special blessing he got? Remember the divine revelation from God? Friends, Jacob experienced much trials and much afflictions. But then, at 130 years old, we know from the Bible that Jacob migrates to the outskirts of Egypt because of a famine. Remember God's providence again. Why is he in Egypt? Where he's going to discover his son? Because God brought a famine to the land. He's the controller of all that happens. He brings Jacob, doesn't he, and his entire clan closer to the outskirts of Egypt. He sends his boys, the very ones who lied to him, into Egypt to get provisions. And what happens? Joseph's there. And he's reunited with his son. He's reunited with his son. Could you imagine 
the patience that it took to ever get to that point. He's lost his father. He's lost his wife. His only daughter's been raped. His sons have created atrocious murders. His favorite son, who he thought would be the one who would bring forth the promised seed, has been killed by a wild beast. There was absolutely nothing for him to live for anymore. Ah, that God found him. God, just at the right time, his time, the Bible teaches, is always perfect. When there seemed to be no hope, he brought Jacob hope. He brought Jacob hope. He brought him and reunited him with his son, Joseph. And at the end of this long, hard road of pursuing something that's been promised, but not yet touched, tasted, or or experienced, The inspired writer wants us to look at what Jacob did. And it's recorded in Genesis 48. Let's look at Genesis 48. Genesis 48, verses 3 and 4. Jacob said unto Joseph, God Almighty appeared unto me at Luz in the land of Canaan, and he blessed me and said unto me, Behold, I will make thee fruitful and multiply thee, and I will make of thee a multitude of people and will give this land to thy seed after thee for an everlasting possession. This is reiterating the covenant that was made with his grandfather Abraham back in Genesis 17. And so this is where it starts. Jacob's coming back to this. And just when he thought that um, there couldn't be any hope, he's seeing that, wait a minute, this, God, God, God still at work here. I thought God was done with our family. I thought God was totally done with this whole promise business that he made to my grandfather Abraham. And that my dad Isaac had told me so much about and who I connivingly stole from my brother Esau because I believed it so much. Wait, this is true. This is still real. God is still in the business of fulfilling his promises. Look at verses 5, 8, and 11. And now thy two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, which were born unto thee. He's here in the presence of his son Joseph. He's been reunited with in the land of Egypt before I came unto thee in Egypt are mine as Reuben and Sibion. They shall be mine. Notice what's taking place here. Even though Joseph has married or took him a wife, an Egyptian wife, and, and bore two sons, Jacob's here, he's adopting them as his very own. And thy issue, which thou begettest after them, shall be thine and she and shall be called after the name of their brethren in their inheritance. Verse 8, And Israel beheld Joseph's sons, and he said, Who are these? And then we have transpiring the blessing here where Joseph brings Ephraim and Manasseh. And Joseph, particularly as the account tells us, for the sake of time, we're not going to look at every detail of it, but as the account tells us, Joseph did what? He did what every normal father would do. He brought his sons in, and he does what? He places the oldest in the right hand of Jacob, and he places the youngest in the left hand, because that's who's supposed to receive the blessing. And then just as Jacob is about to pronounce the prophetical blessing that he still is hoping in, right at the end of his life, as he's about to tarry on with the Lord, he's demonstrating that guess what? God's ways are not our ways. He switches his hands purposefully. Joseph tries to correct his hands. No, no, no. Hey, Dad, uh, the order's here on your right hand. No, 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 Joseph. God knows all things. God is all wise. And the younger shall serve, or the older shall serve the younger. The patience. The patience that's required of God's people who oftentimes think that we know better than God. 
Whenever we move before God wants us to move on anything, before we speak, before God wants us to speak about anything, friends, it often ends up in trouble, doesn't it? It often does. God's timing is always the best timing. In my studies, I come across one commentator, and he said it like this, referring to looking at the examining the, the lives of Isaac and Jacob. He said, we are oftentimes in a hurry. We're oftentimes needing be, to be told to follow the example of these men with more patience. And even though we're oftentimes in a hurry, God, he's never in a hurry. Why? He has eternity, right? He's never in a hurry, friends. Now, I'm going to try to, you know, the, the summary of these people's lives, they're, they're, they're meant here to be an example for us to, to look at and to apply to ourselves. What is it that we're in a hurry to see changed? What is it that we want to see a hurry happen and it's not yet come to fruition? Right? How many prayers yet have been unanswered? Are you losing hope? Are you getting discouraged? It's understandable. Uh, You're not in your sanctified, resurrected, glorified body, friends. But nonetheless, look at the example of Jacob. Look at the example of Isaac. And pursue persevering patience, knowing that all things will happen according just as God has planned. Rest in that. Find a little peace in that. Find some security in that. I was talking to someone just before church and studying, you know, these men's lives again and again. It's been a while since I've been in, in the trenches of their the details of their lives. And it caused me to reflect that in my own life, at this stage, this part of the journey that I'm on, if the Lord tarry, I still have a couple hills to climb. I'm, I'm still going to have a couple valleys to, to go down into. I'm going to have to scrounge around for something to eat, spiritually speaking, you know. We can oftentimes get called up in the hustle and the bustle and the reaction and the this and the that. And we don't stop and stand back and just rest in the peace of really understanding God's providence is working something out in all of this. I need to slow down. I just need to quiet my heart. I need to be patient. I need to wait on the Lord and see what He's doing. Because what I'm praying for, yes, I do earnestly believe, lest I be deceived, is a good thing. What I'm concerned about here, I believe, yes, is a legitimate thing. And God's not responding to either right now. But that doesn't mean God's not up to something. Friends, He is definitely up to something. And we must exhibit foster patience as He works out His plans. We come to verse 22, and I think out of all three of these great patriarchs, the one that exemplified the type of patience that I'm trying to get us to see this morning, to lay hold of and to appreciate and to develop in our lives, is Joseph. Friends, look at verse 22, back at our text. Verse 22. By faith, again, that precious echo of what it is that's helping these men do this thing, helping them be so patient. By faith, Joseph, when he died, he'd made mention of the departing of the children of Israel and gave commandment concerning his bones. Now, there is a lot of places that you could go to, once again, in the life of Joseph, that would say, hey, that's the crowning, imminent example of his faith. What about this? When he was sold by his brothers in that pit, and he did not foster anger and bitterness, who in us in here would raise your hand and say, you know what, I would, when I saw those guys, I would have did the exact same thing Joseph did. Um, you know, who in us would say that? None of us would, right? You can imagine the struggle that it would have been. Joseph didn't harbor bitterness. Joseph didn't harbor anger. Why? Because going back to my introduction... Friends, he was quiet and patient on the Lord. He understood the providential hand of God working all things out somehow or another to the good of those who love God. Joseph understood that. Joseph believed that. 
And so, no doubt, then being falsely accused by Potiphar's wife, being thrown into a dungeon, and there still being a faithful witness to the one true living God, no doubt Joseph stands head and shoulders above his father and his grandfather in this patience that we're talking about today. Does he not? He does. Brothers and sisters, he does. And isn't it interesting when you come down to look at Joseph's life, which is being presented for us today, to help us by faith endure to the end, it's focusing on the end of his life. Why? Why is that? Well, remember, he was sold into slavery when he was 17. 17 years old. My son's 16. He'd be, one year, take Nolan. You guys all know Nolan. Sold into slavery. Goes to Egypt. He's there for 93 years. 93 years. He never once considered it his home. That's what verse 22 is teaching us. For 93 years, I mean, there's some of you who are here who have moved to other states, right? You've developed relationships with other people. You've got jobs. You've planted some roofs down, down there. And sometimes you could say, you know what? Uh, I'm, I'm a Hoosier born. I'm Hoosier born. We got someone here today who's Hoosier born. He knows what that statement means. And he's living in a different state. But after 93 years, if the brother were to tarry that long, I think he would say, you know what? I, 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 got, I identify as a Buckeye now here in Ohio. But really, you know what I'm saying? Joseph, after 93 years, never did that. He's demonstrating here at the end of his life. Now we're almost three to 400 years since Genesis 17. We're echoing again this down the, the halls of the faith, the chamber halls of God's providence. You hear this echo. God's time, God's plan, God's way are what's going to prevail. And oh my covenant people, you must exhibit patience. He's so certain of this, you see in verse 22, where he tells them, <laughs> there is absolutely no sign whatsoever of land development being taken place in Canaan. From the looks of it, it looks like from the eyes of the flesh, there's no way possible. But Joseph tells them, he covenants with them, make sure that when I die, when you leave this place, because you will leave this place, you take my bones with you. And Joshua, as we know, in Joshua 24, did just that, didn't he? The promise was fulfilled. The promise was fulfilled. The prophecy stood firm. And it wasn't Brother Isaac in their time. I hear, as we come down to some more application today, so many Christians running around here frantic, uh, 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 setting off the fire alarm, like they're surprised at the exhibition of sinners displaying their sins in a culture. As if some sort of another God's still not reigning in His providence. No, he is, friends. And you need to respond the way Joseph responded. Hey, listen, I know things are really looking bad out here right now. And I'm about to pass away. And it looks as though the gospel is, is not you know, just spreading like wildfire in this land. But never forget what God has said to you, church. His word will not return to him void. Put your heads down. I say this often. Be consistent and faithful. And let God give the increase. Let God give the increase. And He will. He will. In His own way, in His own time. You have no idea that right now the ground could possibly be being toiled. It could be being fertilized by the wickedness and the depravity of the majority of sinners in, the, in a country, in a land where you dwell, so that revival could burst forth. How is the revival going to burst forth? By you and I still trusting in the promise. Telling others of the promise. Pointing others to the promise, the Savior. Teaching our children of the promise. When we pray, take every single, oh, and I'm pouring my heart out to you, fathers especially, and husbands. When you pray, 
You pray in such a way to where your family is reminded that we confess and we still believe in the one true living God and that we still confess and we still believe that His gospel is true, yes and amen, and that we still believe and we still confess that Jesus Christ is in heaven ruling and reigning and that someday He will come back and He will do what? Make all things right. Let them hear you say that. It's a, what is that? In many ways, what is it? It is a prophetical pronouncement of you as a high priest, Peter says, of what covenant? The new covenant. Of what we're describing and learning about all through the book of Hebrews. That you have a high priest, as I said in my introduction, a redeemer on high, a great mediator, and you, as one of his sons or daughters, you are professing that to all of the world, especially in the context of your family. Well, Joseph demonstrated remarkable persevering Patience. He accepted all of his circumstances under the providence of God and he made the best of them without growing bitter, without complaining, without murmuring. Oh, what an example to us all, brothers and sisters, of the ingredients that are kind of mixed in down in there of what persevering patience is. Are you a murmurer? Are you a complainer? Are you grouchy? Etc., etc. Watch out. Your persevering patience is being tampered with. And I'm raising my hand now because I'm preaching to the choir. Um, I've been editing a book by Charles Spurgeon called Come You Children. And it's a really fine little book. It's Charles Spurgeon talking about his understanding and, and just how precious the salvation of children are. And he's talking to those who have such influence upon children. Uh, those in the visible church. Those who are at our knees all the time, brothers and sisters. Uh, running around after church here today. We're going to see them running around and, and playing. And Spurgeon said to these adult Christians, he said, what, what are you showing to these younger Christians? Are you showing a, a grouchy old man? Are you exhibiting this, this, this grouch, this gloomy kind of a, a, a Christian life? And we're not saying you've got to put on the fake plastic smiles. You guys know me well enough that uh, there's no tolerance for that. No, we are... The Christians who are in the trenches of the muck and the mire. Yes, indeed. And we're saved by grace. No plastic smiles around here. But dear friends, don't let those things, such were exhibited in Isaac's life, in Jacob's life, and now we're seeing here and considering Joseph's life, ever take away from you one ounce of joy that is contained with the promise that Christ sets forth. Don't let it do it. Don't let the remaining corruptions of your flesh take that away from you. I love how Joseph ends his life. I love how it's a demonstration and example for all of us who are on this sojourning pilgrimage called to make it to the very end because whether he sees it with his eyes or not, he believes it by faith in his heart. And so in closing, brothers and sisters, if there are any among you here that are teetering on that cliff of uncertainty because of the things that the eyes of the flesh see, if there's any among you in here that are teetering on the verge of doubt or dismay because of unanswered prayers, if there's any in here today that are wrestling with some sort of ailment that comes with living on this side of glory, I implore you, I beseech you, live out your faith with patience. Be patient and hope and rest in Christ. Let us pray. O Heavenly Father, we, Lord, come before You and we give You thanks, God. We give You thanks for the power of Your converting work in the life of ordinary men such as Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph no doubt were. They were ordinary men. Born sinners, Lord, with that natural inclination for evil manifested many times in their own lives. But, oh God, you did make yourself known to them. You converted them. You changed their hearts. They come to trust and to believe upon you as the one true living God. And much more than that, they come by your sovereign grace. You gave them 
They come to believe in Your promise. Oh God, I pray that as we look and, and we see as the verses today wanted us to see in the lives of these men. Lord, I, want them, I hope that we see in their lives, Lord, Your work uh, helping foster within them much patience during all of these different things that they went through. And oh God, help us, Lord, in the same way. We know, Lord, we need You to do that work in our lives. And You are the only one that can do it. Send forth Your Spirit, O oh, our merciful, loving Father in Heaven. Send forth Your covenant to promise, O oh God, that You will never leave us nor forsake us. Give us, we pray, a restored joy and peace that under Your umbrella of providence that things will work to the good of all of those who love You. Lord, I pray that as we're halfway through Hebrews 11, when we come out of this, O oh God, none of us should have any reason based upon the surety of what You have revealed to us of Your works in creation and in providence, Lord, to ever doubt You. God, we ask and we confess to You our sins of disbelief. And we confess, O oh God, that we believe that that is covered under the righteous blood of Jesus Christ. And we confess and we believe that, O oh God, despite what our eyes may see, that You are still building Your kingdom, one soul, one converted sinner saved by grace at a time. Help us, O oh God, we pray as Your people here. Help us, to pray, or help us, I pray, as Your church sojournering, as these patriarchs we've been reading about. Help us, Lord, to have patience. Help us to persevere. Help us, O oh God, I pray, to live a life of hope, to live a life, O oh God, and a witness that we, Lord, still believe in the promise, that gospel promise that Jesus gave us. Help us, O oh Spirit, we pray. In Jesus' holy name we ask these things. Amen.